heaven. We profess that Jesus is worthy, for he has glorified you in every way. So we worship him. Father, we worship you through him. By the power of your spirit, I pray now that you would enable us to hear your word, open our eyes, our ears, most especially our hearts, that we may receive that which is true and embrace it with every ounce of our being. So we pray that that would occur even now to your glory and for our blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Romans in chapter 3. Romans in chapter 3, I want to read verses 21 to 26. Romans in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Hear the word of God. For now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace through a gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Throughout the centuries, a calendar has developed. And it's been a calendar that has been devoted to marking out, as they say, sacred time. Now, That's a bit of a misnomer, since all time is to be sacred. Any moment, any minute, any day is to be spent to the glory of God, thus making it sacred time. But by that, the makers of this calendar mean uh, there's a way to formulate our year so that the focus of our attention can be upon Christ. And this sacred time calendar begins at Advent. And so during the season of Advent, we're to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus. And we do that here at Grace. That's one of the parts of this sacred calendar that we actually follow from year to year. And that is, we think about the coming of Jesus. We talk about the prophets having uh, declared that he is coming. We we speak of the angels making the declaration to the the shepherds and what it means that the shepherds receive that and the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem uh, and all of that. And then comes Christmas Day and then the, 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 the Sundays after that briefly are called Christmas Tide, and then that builds up to a, a day called Epiphany. And on the day of Epiphany, the word Epiphany means manifestation. And so on the day of Epiphany, we're to think about the fact that, that God has appeared, God made flesh dwelling among us, and, and, and He's come. And, and so often on that particular day, we have a, a reading of the wise men coming, because that says, this is the king who's come. He's, we, we see him now. He's the king who's come, and he's to be worshipped by all kinds of people. And then the Sundays after Epiphany, we might think about the, uh, the, the baptism of Jesus by John, where the Holy Spirit says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father says that. And so, so we're to, to, to think about Jesus and the fact that he's God in the flesh and that he's come. That's who he is. And then that leads into this church calendar and into the season of Lent, which is a time that that the church can focus upon 
the sufferings of Jesus in, in his humanity, how he was tempted and, and how he lived amongst people in, in their sin and, 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 and the effects that that had on him as he lived that out. And then that season of Lent brings us to what we call Holy Week that begins in Palm Sunday and, of course, ends in Easter Sunday, the time between being the time that Jesus is examined by all those who are critical of him and then he's arrested, betrayed and arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross and died and then, of course... We celebrate on Easter Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. The Sundays after that, uh, we call Eastertide, where we think about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And, and that carries us up until the day of Ascension, and then, which then carries us up until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And then from Pentecost to the beginning of Advent is this long season called Trinity, wherein we think about how it is that we live in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I say all of that just to say we're in Lent right now. I just wanted you to know where that comes from. And, and since we just finished with our friend Ezekiel, I thought it might be helpful to us to spend the next few weeks from now till Easter thinking about uh, the cross of Christ. And my thesis that will carry us is this. Jesus is this, that Christ died, and how Christ died, are both observable facts of history and have been recorded for us. That is to say, you can observe the fact that Jesus died. If you had been there, you could have watched it. You could have seen that he died, you could have seen how he died, that he had been betrayed, that he had been beaten, that he had been tried, that he had been nailed to a cross, that he took his last breath on that cross. You could have seen that. And everybody could have watched that and known exactly what would have happened. However, the reason for which Christ died, the purpose for which Christ died, what was accomplished on the cross is also an historical fact, but is known not by observation, but by revelation. Okay? Are you with me? That he died and how he died, we can see why he died. That needs to be revealed to us. What went on in the death of Christ? Because you see, if you walked by that day and you had observed that, this man was arrested, this man was tried, this man was beaten, this man was crucified, that wouldn't have looked all that much different than what the Romans did on a daily basis anyway, in terms of, in terms of, uh, of punishing criminals. If you'd seen those three crosses and three men dying up there, you know, and the little Sesame Street sign came on, you know, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> you wouldn't have necessarily known which one is different. But one was not only significantly different, but one was eternally different. Something happens on the cross that wasn't just observable. Something went on in the heavenly. Something went on in God that needed to be revealed. Now, the Scripture re reveals that to us. It preps us as we read through the Old Testament. Because what we see as we read through the Old Testament is, is everything, as we've been saying for the last few weeks as we've been walking through Ezekiel, everything uh, there is, is pointing us to Jesus. You have priests, you have the sacrifices, you have the temple, and so all of that is, is pointing to Jesus. There is one who is going to come who will take upon himself our sins. And then, of course, the angel arrives and announces 
You shall name him Jesus, because he's going to do something significant. He's going to save his people from their sins. John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes on the scene, and he begins to talk about his own life, and he says, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to, to die, and I'm going to rise again. In fact, he said, I'm the Son of Man, and I came not to be served, but to serve, and to actually give my life as a ransom for many. And so we see this preparation through the Old Testament, through the, even the record of the New Testament, and then after the resurrection, of course, Jesus comes back and reveals what it is that he had done. And so, I'd like to, I always like to tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'd like to spend these weeks then thinking about together why it is that Christ died. That you can't get by seeing it. You can only get by God's revelation as to what was really going on. And we're obviously going to talk uh, in the weeks to come about the fact that he died for his people. He died for the sins of people so they could save his people from their sins. We'll talk about the impact that the cross has to, to reconcile sinners to God. We'll talk about the fact that, that through the cross, the benefits of the old covenant and new are, 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 are won for us and thus given to us. Uh, we'll talk about how the cross reflects the love of God for us. We'll obviously talk about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday and how it is that that confirms everything that Jesus did and what he what was revealed that he had done is really, really true for the cross achieves for us our resurrection, our eternal life. But today I want to twist your heads a bit. Because today I want to talk about something that we don't normally think about when we think about the cross. Because normally when we think about the cross, we think about its impact upon us. What it means for us. We think about Jesus died for our sins. We think about the fact that he suffered so greatly. It must mean that we're loved deeply by him, which we are. But today I want us to, to turn our heads a bit and think about what the cross meant to God. At first, I must say, was moved by this passage in this way. Probably about 20 years ago, when I read a sermon by a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's dead, but, but just warm. He died in 1980. So he's not nearly as dead as some of our old dead friends. But he preached this sermon in 1957. So I had to read it. I could have heard it then, but I wouldn't have paid attention. But the title of the sermon was The Cross, The Vindication of God. That the cross is meaningful to God in a very, very significant way. That I think, if we can get our minds around, will set us on a course of thinking about the cross in a different way than perhaps we have, but a significant way. Um, I must say that when I first read this sermon by Lloyd-Jones, which I commend to you, it will be much better than the one I'm going to preach. But when I first read that sermon, I sat marveling at what he had just written, at what I had just read. And I wasn't quite sure I'd grasp it all because it was a bit dense and the sermon might be a bit dense. I apologize for that. But it set my mind and I think my heart because that's really where it landed upon thinking about God and thinking about the cross of Christ in a way that I hadn't thought before that gave me a love for Jesus deeper than ever and an appreciation. That's such a weak word. An appreciation of God that was deeper. I had known, and it is simply 
grown from there. So I want to share this. Because today, I want to say that the purpose for which Christ died was to glorify his Father. The purpose for which Christ died was to glorify his Father. Now we know that everything in in all of creation and everything that exists, God himself is to live for God's glory. There's, There's no other higher, better, more righteous object but the glory of God. That's to motivate us all. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so that's true for all of us. It's true for God himself that he lives for his glory to reflect himself because he's perfect and he's righteous. And so, so Jesus comes uh, with the purpose of glorifying his Father. For instance, if you'll turn to John in chapter 12 and verse 27. This is leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's that last week. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is uh, Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, what's on Jesus' mind as he goes to the cross is the honor of his Father's name. That's what's driving him here. You might want to say it's because he loves us, and he does. But what's on his mind at this moment is that his Father's name be honored, be glorified. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So, so Jesus is assured, reassured that yes, the cross will glorify the Father. Verse 29, the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it, some had said that it thundered. They missed the voice of God. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice has come for your sake, not mine, to know what's going on there. Because if this voice not come, we wouldn't know that the cross was so that the Son could glorify the Father's name. We wouldn't see that. We'd just see a man dying. But in all of that, behind all of that, being accomplished by all of that, is the Father being glorified by the Son. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He's talking about, of course, the crucifixion. Again, then, chapter 13 and verse 31, as he's with his disciples on that last night that he was betrayed. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Notice then, as he prays in John chapter 17 and verse 1. He's praying to his father. One of the most intimate um, times one could imagine. When Jesus, has, Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So Jesus comes to die on the cross. Yes, for our sins. Yes, because there's love for us and all of that. But on his mind is his father's honor. On his mind is his father's name. On his mind is his father's glory. All right? Now, run back to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> now, when we come to Romans 3 here, of course, Paul doesn't start in Romans chapter 3. Being a good accountant, he starts in Romans chapter 1. Um, it'd be really awkward if he started in chapter 3. But of course, he starts in when he begins his letter. He begins by telling us the gospel. He said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, both first of the Jew, then the Gentile, for Jews and Gentiles both. And he said, in the gospel, therefore, the righteousness of God 
is revealed. Okay? So, rightness, according to God, is being revealed in the gospel. That is, the gospel is showing us the way of righteousness. The way of being right with God. That's the essence of the gospel. And then Paul goes on then to make this case. And he begins by saying, not only is the righteousness of God being revealed by the gospel, but the wrath of God is also being revealed and being poured out upon unrighteousness and ungodliness. And he says, because listen, he says, the heavens are shouting the glory of God. Psalm 19. It's pouring forth speech all the time. In some sense, the stars in the sky is saying, God is great and God is the creator. And Paul says, that leaves us all without excuse. We should be all be able to look up and, and, and bow before God who is great because he is glorious and he's displayed his glory in creation. But he says, we've actually then exchanged the glory of God for that which is created. And that's sin. When you fall short of the glory of God, in a sense, you're exchanging God's glory for the glory of something else. You're saying there's something more glorious than God. There's something more glorious than God that I should follow after, whether it's prestige, or whether it's money, or whether it's the praise of people, or whether, whatever it is. And he says we do that all the time. It's in us. Someone will create a light bulb and will gather around it and glorify the one who made it. And we won't even look up at the sun. And we'll be more impressed with what our hands have made than what sits in the heavens. We'll be more impressed with the people who can create or who can, who can produce a camera to go to Mars to take pictures than we are enamored with the one who made Mars. We exchange the glorious God for another that's less glorious, but in our minds more glorious. And God, who ever lives for his glory, as well he should, sees that as sin. And so if he's going to be just, if he's going to be righteous, he's going to then bring judgment against that which comes against his glory. Romans 118 through the, through the first chapter of Romans, chapter 2 in Romans. Paul then moves on to say, those of you who are judgmental of others, you're condemning yourself in the midst of that. Because you can't even live up to the rules you make. You can't even live up to the rules that you make for others. And so, so you fall by them, but you criticize them. That doesn't put you any better off. Even those of you who don't have the law of God, you're no better off. Because, because you know innately, in some sense, what's right and wrong. And you fail there. And you Jews who have the law, it's not just enough to have it. You need to obey it. And you don't do that. So you too fall short of the glory of God, of honoring God. And then he summarizes all of that. And he says, there's no one righteous. No, not one. Which means, then we're all in unrighteousness, which means that we all fall under the wrath of God. Which is a huge problem for us. And so then he comes with this great word in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And that's great, you see. Because the righteousness of God is that righteousness that is true of God and that righteousness that is required by God to have a relationship with him, to be in right relationship with him. We need that righteousness. And he says, you, you don't have it and you can't get it. And even the law of God can't provide it for you. All that does is show you that you're unrighteous. 
So he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from all. It's shown up. We can see it. It's right here. It's been right here before our very eyes. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It says it all talked about that. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. He says, listen, you want to be right with God. It comes through faith in Jesus. Trust him because he's the righteousness of God. And so if you trust him and he represents you, then you are in him and his righteousness then is yours. And now you are right with God. Verse 20, end of verse 22. For there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exception. This is the way it is for everyone. There's no righteousness apart from Christ. Because he's the righteousness of God. Thus, if you want to be right with God, then you have to enter into Christ. You have to believe upon him. Actually, when the scripture often says, believe in Jesus, the, the expression could be better translated, believe into Jesus. Always like that. I always feel like I'm getting sucked up by Jesus. You know, believe into him. That's just the, into him. And so you become so identified with him. And when the Father looks at us, he sees Christ. And we're covered and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And he says, this is the way it is. There's no exception here. No one can have righteousness apart from the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse uh, 23, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified means declared righteous. Right? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Meaning he paid the price. He did it. He redeemed us. He paid the ransom for our sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be forgiven. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that little word propitiation in my version, if you have a New American Standard Version, it has propitiation. If you have a New International Version, it says sacrifice of atonement. When the translators in the NIV translated this word sacrifice of atonement, they did it because they didn't believe people knew what propitiation meant. I don't think people know what sacrifice of atonement means. So I rather like propitiation. It's just I just like big words. And so propitiation, to propitiate means... To satisfy, or to exhaust, to, 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 to complete the wrath of God. It, 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 just, it just satisfies it. It exhausts it. The just wrath of God against our sin, when covered with the blood of Christ, satisfies. That's enough, God says. That's all I need. That's plenty that fills it up, that satisfies, that exhausts it. Whatever word you want to use to say that it ain't there no more. That, that there's no case against us any longer. That we're not only pardoned of our sin, we're not only freed of our sin, but we're actually looked upon by God as having the righteousness of God. Right? So we stand in His presence. Holy. All of this from Jesus. But notice verse 25. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, God did this. And now we begin to get into something. There's been a great talk these days about who killed Jesus. And certainly we can, we can, we can observe who killed Jesus. Uh, Judas had a part in it, obviously. His greed. Uh, the Sanhedrin. 
religious authorities of the Jews, led by Caiaphas, had a hand in it, obviously. Their envy of Jesus. Uh, Pilate, though he tried to wash his hands of it, had a hand in it, in that he ordered the beating and ordered the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, some may even try to get behind the scenes and say Satan had a hand in this. That's no doubt true. Although at the end, Satan went, that was stupid. Um, <laughs> Some have said our sin was responsible for Jesus on the cross. That's true in some measure. But the truth of the matter is, it was God. In fact, Peter preaches upon this in Acts chapter 2, just by brief mention. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let me begin with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it was the plan of God to do this. It was the plan of God to do this. You heard while we were singing from Isaiah chapter 63. For instance, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That is, we've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of another. We've taken ourselves as being more glorious than God, so we've followed ourselves. And notice, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did that. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The word will could be translated as it is in other places in the Old Testament. Pleasure. It was the pleasure of God. It pleased God. It's also translated elsewhere as delight. And it delighted the Lord to crush him. And so God was responsible. We need to be understanding that. I don't know that you would get that by observation. I think you might blame Judas. You might blame the Jewish authorities. You might blame Pilate. You might even blame Satan. You might blame your own sin. But but the point of the matter is you need to see God in the midst of that. It was his will to crush him. Now, if we would end there, what I have just read to, to the middle of verse 25, that would be the gospel, and that would be fine. We have a great understanding of the gospel. The righteousness of God has come. There is righteousness from God to us, for all who believe in Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, declared righteous by God, freed of our sins, accepted by God, adopted by him, justified, all that. But then God goes on to explain the purpose for which that took place. Because you need to ask the question, well, did Jesus really have to die? Was that really important? I mean, could have it been done some other way? Could God have simply said, I love you, I forgive you, you're mine? Well, why couldn't that have taken place? Well, you'll tell us why here, in the middle of verse 25. This, that is all that Jesus did, purpose for everything that Jesus did, this was to show, to demonstrate, this was to show God's righteousness. 
See? Now, we would say, if I were writing that next verse, probably something like, this was to show us how much God loves us. It was that. John writes, for this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. It was that. But don't miss this. This was to show God's righteousness. There was something going on in God here that was significant. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you understand? Do we understand the great dilemma God has faced in saving us? He has to go against, it appears... Justice, for instance, the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Do you understand that in our salvation, God, in essence, is justifying the wicked? He's justifying sinners. He's justifying those who have who've exchanged his glory with another who's sinned. That's the problem. In fact, it says here that he, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, which he did. Read through the Old Testament. You find sin after sin, God passing over. Think of David for a minute. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills her husband, has him killed. He lies about it. It takes a while. Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him. David confesses his sins and Nathan says, God has put away your sin. You will not die. And I want to say, why not? That's not justice. That's not right, is it? I mean, if someone slept with your mom and had your dad killed and the judge walked in and said, no big deal. Would you be happy about that? Would that say anything good about that judge? Even in your own life, as God has passed over your sins, as you sit here breathing, how can he do that? How can he justify the ungodly? Well, that's where Jesus comes in. There appears to have been A covenant formed, a contract made, promises exchanged before the creation of the world where it was all decided what would take place. For instance, in Ephesians, in chapter 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. The apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him that is in Christ. Let me help you with the pronouns. Even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those are all significant words, all true. That before the world was made, the Father and the Son entered into an agreement that the Father would save those he had chosen. But if you can spin that conversation with me, like this. The Father says to the Son, I desire to save sinners. 
But the son would say, you can't do that. It's your righteousness. How can you justify the ungodly? You are righteous and holy. How can you save? How can you justify those and declare righteous those who have exchanged your glory with that of another? How can you do that? But the father says, but, but I want to. I love them. That's my desire to save them. And the son says, all right. I'll take their punishment so that your righteousness can be vindicated. I'll take their punishment so that no one can ever say you're unjust in loving and accepting these sinners. And so the cross was so that the Father's righteousness could be vindicated. The Father's righteousness could be upheld so that no one could say that God was not glorious and that God was not righteous. And so every lash that Jesus took in his beating pronounced this, my Father's righteous. My Father's glorious. My Father's just. And there is that sense in which you see that even as the Father laid our iniquity upon Jesus and even as the crushing blows came to him, And even as the nails were in his feet, and even as the Father forsook the Son, that the Father delighted to crush him. Why? Because the love of the Son for the Father was so great at that moment in time. The Son was saying, I'll take all of this suffering. I will take hell itself so that your righteousness can be vindicated. That's amazing to me. I I don't even quite know where to go with that. Other than sit in the truth of it. But I have to ask this question. I ask it of me. I ask it of you then. If that's how Jesus honored the glory of his Father, honored his Father's name. How is it that we should honor the Father's name? How can we glorify the Father's name? And the answer is this. Believe in Jesus. Because you see, if you don't believe in Jesus, yet you believe that God will accept you, you're saying God is unrighteous. You're saying that God is unjust. You're saying that God isn't glorious as he's glorious in his righteousness. Because you're saying that he's going to do something unjust and he's going to receive you and simply pass by your sin and do nothing about it. But you see, as we believe in Jesus, we honor the Father's righteousness. We glorify him and we say there's no way that God who is holy and righteous can receive one like me. Thus, I must come through Jesus, who is the righteousness of God. And then, it's simply this for me. To bow in humble adoration and proclaim, God, you're great. Let's pray. Father in heaven. You're astounding. Lord Jesus, the love that you have for the Father to die so that he would be known as righteous as he 
accepts sinners and justifies them is unthinkable. So we give you thanks and sit and worship you. I pray that this will never leave our minds as we think about Jesus, the beating that you took and the cross that you bore and the death that you died. Yes, we know it's for our sins and all of that, but to know that it was to love your Father and to honor his name and to glorify him. May that inform, may that bless every thought we have about you and the cross. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> One of the reasons that we uh, write words of songs that we sing in your bulletin is so that you can take it home with you and use it during the week. This hymn, uh, 19th century, early 19th century hymn, um, the stricken, smitten, and afflicted, has this expression in the second verse. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And Jesus was happy about that. And the Father delighted in it. So sing that to yourself all week, if you would. The response to the benediction this morning is this one. Glory be to God. Excuse me. Glory be to God. Amen. And when you say glory be to God, you're saying the cross was for the glory of God. My faith is to the glory of God. My life is to be to the glory of God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace. We brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Glory be to God. Amen.